You're listening to Malta Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Tailor made for you and for your listening. A pleasure and alhamdulillah. I sense again to legal talk. Your favorite is I'm back, a senior attorney, Ashraf Yusuf. And let me welcome you with uh, the Ummah with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me how you think this fine, uh, beautiful evening, uh, Ashraf. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shafat, all is well. Thank you. Alhamdulillah. Thanks to Allah. Um, another week has gone by and we have no complaints. Alhamdulillah. And you? Uh, no, the same with you. You know, whenever, when I'm in your company, I really, my spirits are lifted and I always am looking forward to another lesson on uh, legal talk. And, uh, the, you know, the more we talk to each other, uh, the better it makes me feel. And Alhamdulillah, with your barakah, the program goes on and on year after year. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you also, Ashraf, for making this a successful and a powerful platform indeed. And, you know, many things happening in our country, uh, so many issues. And Alhamdulillah, one of the things that, that you'll be discussing is the uh, 22 Afghan nationals are seeking asylum in uh, the Republic of South Africa. And, uh, you know, you, you'll be talking about the judgment. We'll get to that a bit uh, later on. But uh, in the meantime, a medley of topics uh, that have come in front of us, uh, and we notice that... Uh, you know, action essay disputes. Ramaphosa has claimed that governments is not obliged to provide electricity. I mean, this is such a shocking uh, statement made by the president of the country. Surely, it's uh, the uh, uh, you know the duty of the state uh, to provide electricity for us, water for us, uh, uh, you know, and uh, give us uh, everything. Uh, service delivery should be on par. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, was Ramaphosa sleeping or? Did he make a deliberate mistake, or what was happening? What was Ashra? I think um, if you if you're technical about it, right? I think uh, it's very clear that it is not a right em- enjoyed in terms of the constitution. I think what um, he was saying was they're not constitutionally obliged um, to to give you uh, electricity or to provide in other words right let's let's be clear there is a thing called the bill of rights in the constitution right it's it falls under chapter 2 and basically it says that the bill of rights is the cornerstone of the of the democracy in south africa right it enshrines the rights of all people and affirms democratic values. Now, here's the democratic values that they talk about. Human dignity, equality, and freedom. Then it says the state must respect and promote and protect the uh, rights in the Bill of Rights. And let's be clear, it's not an unlimited right because in Section 7, they say that the Bill of Rights are subject to limitations in terms of Section 36 of the Constitution. Now, it's amazing when you look at that, right? It says the Bill of Rights basically applies to all and binds the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, and everyone else. And when applying the provision of the Bill of Rights to natural justice, a court must give effect to the Bill of Rights. So what, why am I harping on about this? Let's quickly have a look at some of the rights in the Bill of Rights. The right to equality, the right to human dignity, the right to life, the right to freedom of security of the person, which is includes 
not to be deprived of their security, uh, not to be uh, deprived of freedom arbitrarily or without just cause, not to be detained without trial, etc. Interestingly, the right uh, not to be subject to slavery, servitude or forced labor. Now we continue the right to privacy, the freedom of religion, belief and opinion, freedom of expression, assembly, demonstration and picket, freedom of association, political rights. Then section 20, citizenship, no one may be deprived of citizenship. This is an interesting, um, it's an interesting provision because when you look at what's happened in England to one of the young ladies that went to join ISIS, um, I think her name was Banu, and then she was deprived ultimately of her citizenship. So, in you know, it's different from ours. And then freedom of movement and residence in section 21, freedom of trade, labor relations. Now, environment, this is interesting, right? Everyone has a right to an environment that is not harmful to their health or well-being and have the environment protected for the benefits of present and future generations, prevent pollution, promote conservation, and secure ecologically sustainable development and the use of natural resources. Then you have not to be deprived of your property in 25, and it goes on, then you have a right to housing in 26. Now look here, 27 says healthcare, food, water, and social security. Why am I taking time to explain? Because it doesn't specifically say that you have a right to electricity. So these are the things that the state mm. must provide. Um, then obviously section 28, the rights of children, 29, education, 30, language and culture, cultural, religious and linguistic communities, Access to information in terms of Section 32, just administrative action in 33, 34 is access to courts, then 35, your rights as a detained and accused person, and it goes on. Now, Section 36 says there's a limitation of that right. But the way I uh, then, you know, we can't go too deep into this. Section 37 also provides for states of emergency and uh, basically how you can enforce your rights, then how it, uh, the courts are to interpret the Bill of Rights and says it must promote the value underlying an open and democratic society based again on human dignity, equality and freedom. Then 39.2, uh, 39.1b says must consider international law. So you must consider it and you must consider foreign law. And when it comes to 39.2, it says, when interpreting any legislation and when developing the common law, every court must promote the spirit, purport, and objects of the Bill of Rights, which is basically that, that we just spoke about, dignity, equality, and freedom. So you can see now, just from the Bill of Rights, okay, that there isn't a specific provision for the provision of electricity. However, I think what was argued against the government position was that a right to dignity encompasses 
the right to electricity. Or put another way, your right to security encompasses the right to be provided with electricity. So, you know, how far does that demand go? I mean, then it will include the people in the rural areas or in the people that are at the end of the ESCOM grid that don't have electricity, don't have an access to electricity. And if they were to argue that that was a constitutional right, then they would be able to force government to do so. So, so clearly, water is one issue that we know where the government has to give you water, it can't cut it off. Education is very, very clear. Dignity and human rights is very clear. But under dignity, it was amazing that almost now 23 years ago in the Dow decision, they said that the person had a right to dignity, but you know the, the, it, didn't, it didn't include the right to marriage. So they stretched it out a bit and they said, but the right to dignity encompasses the right to family and to spousal enjoyment and cohabitation. So in, in splitting uh, married couples due to immigration legislation, the court said, no, it is an affront to the right of dignity. So there was a protection afforded there. Now, most amazingly, many years ago, there was a terrible Sunday Times conspiracy to, um, to publish some insulting cartoons against our beloved Nabi Sallallahu There was a young, dynamic judge who is now late, Muhammad Jazbai, and he forbade the newspapers from publishing that because it was an affront to the right of dignity. I mean, can you imagine now how uh, this is, as I think, the only judgment in the world that basically said that it's an affront to a constitutional protected right to dignity and therefore you can't publish the cartoons. So I hope that has given you um, a good idea of why the government is saying it's not a constitutionally, it's not a constitutional demand and what the opposition is saying in saying, but it is part of our right to dignity. They didn't argue security as far as I know, but that would be in the alternative, Shafat. Zakhalaf for that, Ashraf, already uh, crystal clear, and uh, you know I can see uh, a few issues are uh, very clearly. But you know, uh, harping on e electricity and uh, you're talking about uh, ESCOM and so forth. I mean, with the you know with the blackouts and with the load shedding, uh, it's a given if it happens uh, through unforeseen circumstances. Uh, but there are stories, and uh, uh, many say there are proof. Uh, there is proof uh, that. Uh, criminal uh, cartels have got in, uh, there's a mafia running within it, but it starts right from uh, government levels. There are ministers uh, complicit in this, uh, Gwed Mantashe, some talk about Praveen Gaudan, uh, you know, some even talk about uh, the uh, retired uh, president. I mean, he, with his salary, he bought jets and he bought hangers and so forth. Uh, but uh, the point made here is that the director says, you know, he's there to uh, name and shame people. Uh, he will tell you who the culprits are. And then, uh, you know, if you look at what ESCOM has done, big industries, many businesses have closed, people have lost their livelihood, uh, foreign investors want to leave the country. Should, hypothetically speaking, Ashraf, should there be um, evidence that this was done at, uh, or uh, sabotage took place at ESCOM, uh, you know, via government officials and so forth, uh, can this tantamount to treason, Ashraf? 
So traditionally, right, uh, treason is defined as an attack on the state. Now, the next question is, would an attack on the infrastructure of the state amount to treason? Because treason really means that you want to break down the state. You, you're acting against the, the organization of the state. Uh, let's put it differently. Let's say somebody wanted to bomb some railway lines or some dams. Um, that's also part of our in infrastructure. Now, does that amount to treason? Or a person stealing potholes and creating dangers on the road? Or railway tracks where then the, the trains cannot move and transport goods? So, the, the, you know, interesting question that you raised, but I think there's two parts to the question. Number one, what the rater had alleged in the public domain in a interview. Now, as far as I know, everyone is saying, but if you knew, then, or if you know, then please go and lay a criminal case, lay a criminal charge. That way, let it be investigated rather than it being conjecture or opinion. I don't know if you saw the one today where the rater is showing how a pair of uh, you know those knee pads that the uh, domestics yes. use? Yes. Cost 350 rands a pair at builders, and they were billed 90,000 rands for a pair. Wow. Um, there was toilet paper at 15 rands each. I mean, it was just, it went on and on and on. And and I guess what he's done is he's, he's gathered the evidence, and basically, at the eve of his departure, which was brought forward, uh, he decided, okay, I am going to say what I need to say. Now, let's say that he, he does go and um, lay a charge of theft, uh, sabotage, etc., etc. He's very clearly mentioned there were four cartels. And there's a lot of speculation in the press who the head of these cartels are then, there was some more investigation into people that were hitmen. And I mean, it's it runs very, very deep. Now, we've just come out of a thing called the State Capture Commission. And as you can see, um, I think the state spectacularly lost its first, first case because there was insufficient um, uh, evidence or they couldn't prove the evidence. So it's one thing having all of these charges laid it's another than actually getting to a successful prosecution because I think that's what people want. People are saying they're tired of uh, charges being laid and nothing happening. Uh, I just gave an example of State Capture Commission. But you know, Shafat, to be fair, uh, in order to get a proper prosecution, you know, your groundwork, your policing and your dockets and your evidence has to all line up with the law. And as much as people are frustrated, um, you know, it, this is a lengthy process. It is to ensure that a proper case is made out so that the perpetrators may not escape on a legal technicality or lack of evidence or both. So I think one of the weaknesses in our system is we don't have prosecution driven investigations. You know, like you see uh, in overseas, uh, the FBI is working with the state attorney or the attorney general or whatever they call them. And, you know, they're putting a case together to ensure there is a conviction. 
uh, that we lack resources. I think only the Hawks actually has a dedicated team of investigators. But, you know, there's only so much they can do. Um, then we have the specialized uh, commercial crimes court uh, where they deal with this. And of course, now there is this the other forum that deals with state capture complaints and, and trying to recover, um, you know, monies. But, but the state is under tremendous pressure. No doubt, wherever there is a crime and there is suspicion and there is prima facie evidence, you have the duty to go and report it. You can't, you can't be complicit in hiding a, a, a crime. So I, I think there the writer might be, you know, called to account for why he didn't do A, B and C. Of course, his defense is, well, I was nearly poisoned and the next thing I'm going to be killed. And whistleblowers, as you know, in this country are not very safe. Uh, Babika Diyukaran paid with her life when she tried to expose um, the uh, going on at a particular hospital and she named people. So he could be saying that, look, um, in fact, I think he said that he's leaving the country because he feels unsafe. So you've got to take that into account. And if there's no witness here, can you imagine I lays a claim and he goes overseas? How are they going to prosecute the, the witness, the one who said, you know, made the complaint is not there to back up his statement under oath because they will have to cross examine him in the box in order to secure a, a conviction. This is now half part of the how the judicial services, how the how the justice system works. You've got to have you've got to test that evidence. You've got to give an opportunity for a cross examination, re-examination. This is how the system works, Shafat. As frustrating as it is, we have no choice. That's how it works. Yeah, you embossed that and you said this, uh, that is how it works and uh, you have to uh, lay the charges and so forth. And, uh, you know, it seems as if, uh, you know, maybe in Ramaphosa, uh, we have our, uh, you know, Gued Mankashe there, Pravin Gordon, uh, Godan, as I said, and many other uh, that could be named and, uh, you know, but it needs to be brought uh, to court. And then uh, we have our, you know, Chief Justice uh, Zondo uh, talking about, uh, he says, uh, Zuma's uh, defiance of state capture inquiry was a threat to the Constitution. And it seems as if uh, Chief Justice uh, Zondo isn't giving up upon uh, Jacob uh, Zuma. I mean, he say he's an old man, let him graze, leave him to pastor, let him go and live in his kraal and his farm and do what he has to do because he's an old man. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? You see, uh, Shafat, it's it's a difficult thing to to use age as a defense, right? Um, let let me just give you an example. <clears throat> you know, after the Second World War, there were pe people that went hunting for the Nazis, and even if they found them in their nineties and bedridden and things, they were hauled off to to face a criminal case for their crimes against humanity. So now you have a situation here where the Zondo Commission is saying there, there was blatant contempt for the commission and its work. I mean, it's cost uh, several millions, if not a billion, I think. And secondly, you know, the rule of law requires everyone, every citizen to obey 
the rules of law and not to be in contempt. So I think what they're saying is irrespective of age, etc., you will face the full might of the law for whatever is alleged against you. To counter that, I think we heard the former president say on many occasions that he wanted his day in court. He was innocent of all wrongdoing. So many people in the legal circles are observing all of these things and they're saying that there's an adoption of the Stalingrad technique, which is, you know, to stall the inevitable as much as possible, whether by appeals, counter appeals, bringing up uh, applications for prosecution, etc., etc. Now, whether that's true or not, I mean, we just read in terms of the Constitution, everyone has access to courts, everyone has a right uh, to uh, fair legal treatment. And if the uh, party believes that he hasn't been given his day in court, well, there's nothing preventing him or we shouldn't be looking down because that's the constitutional imperative. We can't be saying uh, what you see now is just buying time and he's, you know, this and that. He has a right to challenge the findings against him. He has a right to challenge a prosecution against him, as does every citizen. So he is, in my view, playing by the rules. Whether we like it or not, again, that is what the Constitution provides. Now, you know, Ashraf, whenever you look at what uh, Zuma did, he had uh, Jacob, uh, he had uh, Cyril Ramaphosa as his, uh, uh, you know, uh, deputy president. And surely, uh, you know, if uh, Zuma has been found guilty, uh, Cyril uh, Ramaphosa could be complicit to that. And uh, perhaps even when you talk about the arms deal, they say Nelson Mandela knew about it, uh, Thabo Mbeki knew about it, and that uh, uh, Thabo Mbeki had a big hand uh, to play in the arms deals and so forth. So what do we do in this conundrum then, uh, Ashraf? So I think you'll be aware that um, there was a big uproar in uh, Parliament when Malema said that the ANC failed the, uh, failed, uh, the, the nation because they stood as a party behind the former president. I mean, there were many, many ministers there. And, uh, you know, the party closed party lines. And instead of doing what was right um, for the impeachment of the president, then they sided with the president then. And, And this is something that we can't get away from. This is something that has happened and I guess will happen. Uh, I think the Palapala inquiry was also along the lines of of the of party voting, uh, as was um, you know you saw a few uh, dissenting votes in the in the uh, reinsta- in the in the election for the president. So again, <clears throat> the question is how to deal with these various issues. I'm afraid we, there's not too many easy answers, Shafat. I mean, you're asking uh, parliamentarians to basically break rank, uh, which which basically could result in them losing their ministerial positions, maybe not the, um, um, as members of cabinet. Now, you know, a lot of people, you know, they 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 say they they're entitled to these ministerial. Uh, positions. I mean, I think there was an infamous quote that 
somebody never joined the struggle to be poor. So, you know, you can throw your hands yeah. up in the air, but that's the reality that we're facing. It's, uh, you know, whether it is just or unjust is a matter of debate, but certainly that's how democracy operates. And democracy appears to have been the model that we have chosen. Um, South Africa is a constitutional democracy. So it's no longer a parliamentary democracy. It's what the constitution provides that is paramount. So everyone is bound by the same terms and conditions. Of course, you'll be, you'll be angry if people that um, have uh, committed crimes and have got off. But if that is a result of due process, well, then so be it. You know, on the other hand, there's a big criticism that a lot of the people that were um, charged or you know, not, not really charged, but had charges to answer for in the um, uh, reconstruction, reconcilia reconciliation commission's findings were not criminally charged. And a lot of people were angry about that. And and that legacy continues. I mean, I think we, we saw a successful prosecution now post uh, the inquiry into Ahmed Timo, that he was actually pushed and he didn't slip. And uh, Jao Rodriguez was 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 said to be, uh, you know, they were going to charge him. But so so again, you know, you see that it takes a very very long time, but there's due process carrying on. It's churning out very slowly. So it depends, Shafat, which side of the coin you're on. Then there was this veiled threat that, you know, what happened in Phoenix One uh, about two years ago could could flare up again where the populace are dissatisfied with the judgment uh, of the court. And uh, they take to the streets and as you, you know, you remember it was in resulting in terrible violence, loss of property and life. And there was that, that threat all again. Um, in fact, you recall the, th the, the night that the, the ex-president had to be taken to escort prison. I mean, they, it was like a military scene. There were helicopters, there were special forces, there were all of these things descending on Khan, yeah. And then, uh, you know, he was taken off without incident. But, but you could see it was, you know, tension and on a knife's edge. So again, you know, the state has to manage all of its citizens, the good and the bad. Jazakallah for that, Alhamdulillah, lots of uh, powerful information coming through from you and, uh, you know, you can hear your experience are coming through and Jazakallah once again for that. And uh, then uh, looking at this article which says, HAL Affairs uh, High Court orders uh, Department of Home Affairs uh, to register uh, uh, birth of stateless man after 10 year battles. Uh, after 10 years, the court is ordering. Talk to us about it, Ashraf. So again, you know, Shabbat, this is a recent judgment. Uh, basically, the person had not been given his ID. Um, and, uh, you know, he was he was basically in limbo, right? So he took the Department of Home Affairs to court. And the department was alleging that they they couldn't just do it because there were questions and you know security issues around people so you know it's well known that people have jippoed the home affairs system right and basically from there you can see that they've got the documentation that they weren't 
I would say, you know, weren't entitled to, right? Now, at the end of the day, what is the, you know, the, the important thing is that the Department of Home Affairs is the sole, is the sole arbiter of all our information. It is not, it is not entrusted to any other department. So this gentleman here, uh, just gentleman, uh, Mr. Debojo Koza, he couldn't register his birth because, you know, he, he couldn't prove um, his status. And he was sent for the last year from pillar to post. This is what the, the judgment found, right? And then it ordered the department that, look, the man has spent a decade now struggling to have his presence recognized. And on Monday, they said that the, the department had failed in its mandate to assist Mr. Tabojo Koza, who was basically a stateless orphan. He, you know, he was, he was born in South Africa, but the parents were undocumented. And of course, they were illegal. When he was orphaned at the age of, birth, uh, age of six, his birth was not registered yet by his biological parents, and he was sent to a youth center in Lumpopo. When he was 16, he tried to apply for a late birth registration at the home affairs in Lumpopo, and then obviously he couldn't get it. And, you know, if people understand if they've tried to uh, liaise with the department, they'll also be sent from pillar to post, especially where the things are murky, right? And Here's what the judge said. He says, the evidence shows that the department was inflexible and oppositional and had little to no basis to deny Mr. Koza's claim to citizenship. And they said it took them 10 years and the infringement still continues and he was prejudiced by not being declared a citizen. Now, we've done cases where people were stripped of their citizenship and had lost tremendous opportunity along the way and had to go overseas and you know so so there's all these prejudicial angles when you're not in in placed in your in position of your SAID and basically you know the judge in this case said look I'm ordering you you will register his name in the population register national population as a citizen and you'll give him his uh, ID and you'll issue his birth certificate so uh, you know, one hopes that, and, and this matter was done by the lawyers for human rights. He, the the attorney that acted in um, the on behalf of the applicant, Mr. Koza, he says, you know, he's commenting on the judgment. He says that you see the department's attitude towards cases that, and and he says they need to be brought to account. He, you know, he was taking umbrage at the fact that people were sent from, uh, the applicant was sent from uh, pillar to post. And, you know, they were trying to say that it's not enough for home affairs to leave things like that and, and leave people to be stateless. Um, in fact, um, there was an angle there of contempt of court. It said that it found the minister had failed to promulgate regulations to give effect to Section 2.2 of the Citizenship Act, which was required by Section 23, despite three previous court orders instructing to do so. And this amounted to contempt of court.
So let's just take a quick dive into Section 2.2 of the Citizenship Act. It says, any person born in South Africa, listen to this carefully, any person born in South Africa shall be a citizen at birth if they do not have citizenship or nationality of another country or have no rights to such citizenship or nationality. And there's a second part, if their birth is registered in South Africa in accordance with the births and deaths registries act. So these are the three cases that the judge was speaking about. And uh, thus far, nothing has actually happened. And so you can see that there in Mr. Um, in this Koza's case, he said that he was an orphan. His parents were undocumented and illegal, but in any event, they had died. So you can't establish what citizenship he would be entitled to of another country. So basically, he's stateless. And the, they say that the South African constitution doesn't, um, doesn't accept statelessness. So I think you have, uh, you know, tremendous example in that case of how the law is operational in favor of the applicant. And you can see that the, the department is basically um, dragging its feet. And I mean, the effects on people uh, without an ID is basically you are stateless, you're a ghost, as they said. Um, statelessness, you know, forces you to do all kinds of things. You know, you you could you could die and no one knows who you were, uh, or you could you could catch the lotto and then not be able to prove who you are. So you can see that there are a lot of benefits for having clarification of your status in the country, and maybe we're taking this for granted. But here we are in 2023. Uh, people have been waiting for almost 10 years now for a identity document. And based on the provisions of the Citizenship Act that we just read, Section 2.2, if you are born here, even if your parents are illegal and your details are uh, entered in the population register and you do not qualify for citizenship of any other country, you are declared to be stateless and therefore statelessness is not accepted and therefore you are now recognized as a citizen by birth. I hope that is clear, Shabha. You know, as you said, I listened very carefully and I did and, and you're clearing uh, so many issues uh, this evening. Uh, bless you for that, uh, Ashraf. And also, you know, looking at that article, it says more level gangs uh, from Bangladesh <laughs> for, uh, for find after South African passports were issued to Bangladeshis and Pakistani nationals. I mean, uh, there's a, uh, imagine you got a, pa a Paki or a Bangladeshi face on the pa passport and that uh, guy looks at you at the airport and again, how? When I love Ogang, Unjani, Yapil. And the guy can't say a word, say, hey man, there's something wrong here. Uh, but uh, this is a problem, Ashraf. This is a big problem, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was well ventilated in the press, but maybe it makes for, um, you know, repetition. So basically, there was a criminal syndicate uh, headed by Pakistani. And what he was doing is getting people from all all over South Africa who never, ever applied for passports. And basically, what he would do then is uh, arrange for a uh, wealthy Bangladeshi or foreign national 
who wanted the South African passport, obviously couldn't get it through the normal challenge. So let's say they'll take uh, me and I will go with them to Home Affairs and I'll put the whole application through my name, ID, etc. But when it comes to biometrics, which these days are captured uh, digitally, it's no longer that you have to put a thumbprint and a small photo, right? Then the Pakistani interposes himself as the applicant. And indeed, when the passport comes out, it spits out a South African name and ID, but the biometrics belong to a foreigner, and, and then he would basically use the document to travel, open accounts and do everything else. So this was a scheme that was very, very well run. I think it took two years for the authorities to actually track it and crack it. They had, I think it was a Rotoport or Krugersdorp office of Home Affairs open at night where they were processing these uh, applications, obviously with the help of Home Affairs officials, because you need to mend those machines. Those machines are electronic and you need to take a photo in a booth. You must have done this when you applied now for your passport. And you can see it's a, you know, it's a streamlined system. It was going very, very well until I, I don't know what happened. Uh, and then obviously the authorities clamped down on them. But, uh, you know, figures like 50,000 was paid by me as the applicant, for example. And the person whose ID was used only received 500. So you can see a lot of people made money in between. But that's how it is. Criminal syndicates would always thrive and law enforcement has to be alert. You know, Ashrafa, what is uh, disturbing is that uh, the other day I was reading an article where they talk about uh, kidnapping. But in this country, we have uh, Bangladeshis kidnapping their fellow Bangladeshis and holding them to ransom. And the same thing is happening with the Pakistani and the Pakistani. Uh, have we got a bunch of criminals that are working here as businessmen or entrepreneurs, uh, Ashraf? I don't think, you know, we can only say that crime is limited to South African citizens, whatever the, the level of the crime, uh, you know, maybe drugs, extortion, bank robberies or, you know, whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I think they even found Sasa grants were being siphoned off um, by syndicates. I think there, there was a guy who was found with, I don't know how many hundred of cards. But I don't think we can say that uh, crime is a foreign problem, Shafat. I mean, crime is crime. People do it whether they have status or whether they're citizens or not. Uh, Inter-community crime has always been there. In our own communities, in the past, people were kidnapped or tortured or murdered by members of gangs that were locals or by other locals. So it's not new. So I don't think we must, uh, you know, define crimes along the lines that you're a Bangladeshi and I'm a Bangladeshi and therefore when we do it, it's more serious, more than anyone else. Of course, I think the international criminals come with a certain level of sophistication that we haven't seen. Kidnappings are now rife. There's no doubt that this is an imported speciality. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like this before. You know, one hears about incidences in, in especially in Mozambique. And, uh, you know, it now appears to be filtering down where um, uh, people with wealth are being targeted. This, this was something that was, is something that is new. It was there in the past, but not to this level. Uh, and no doubt they have another level of 
enforcement because they know each other's families. So basically, when they, you know, when they don't uh, honor each other's debts, well, they say to them, we'll, we'll collect it back home because we know who your family is, we know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That is a more serious, uh, you know, way of, of basically uh, dealing with this thing because, you know, people's uh, fa- families abroad are now vulnerable and dragged into this. But I don't think we could say it's exclusively it is uh, something that happens within those communities. Yes, it might be more prevalent, but definitely not exclusive to them, Shafa. Well, Ashrafa, before we get uh, to the topic of, uh, you know, uh, discussing the 22 Afghan nationals are seeking for asylum in RSA and the judgment, uh, I want to, you know, maybe you could give us uh, your insight on this, where, you know, China loses more than 40 million workers uh, as population ages. And, you know, as China kept that policy, I think one child policy and so forth, it's come back to bite them, Ashraf. Yeah, I think it's a phenomenon that not just China is going through. You can see in Europe as well. I mean, yes. there, there is um, there, from the United States and uh, in, into, into Europe, let's call it the Western world as well. Uh, there is zero population growth because the institution of marriage basically is not appealing to anyone anymore. Uh, you know, bringing up children or even having children is, is, is again seen as a burden. And, uh, you know, um, China obviously had an official policy and basically the old are now redundant. They are unable to work and there is not enough new births to, to fill in the position that you would have in a normal environment. I mean, you know, people, people are basically seen as uh, part of the workforce more than anything else. Being part of the workforce also means that you are contributing to the fiscus, and the fiscus is then utilized to upkeep society. Um, you know, whether it's your rates on taxes or sewage or water, uh, roads, infrastructure, education, health, whatever there is, it's all dependent upon people paying their taxes and, uh, you know, spreading the benefits. So, yeah, the report is, is correct. China now f- is facing a crisis. That doesn't exclude, Shabbat, the replacement of human beings as the workforce. It might give rise to the age of automation, uh, artificial intelligence, and cloning. Uh, or, you know, there are robots that, that have replaced lots and lots of jobs. But definitely in the long term, uh, worrying for them because it will even include or influence the military standing. Can you imagine if you don't have enough soldiers? I mean, you're not going to be a very powerful military force. Um, you know, just using Ukraine as an example, today the Russians were saying that the Wagner group or the Wagner group is a private mercenary group and they're very, very experienced in battle. Now, Imagine if they didn't have enough soldiers and there's been lots of slaughter on both sides and loss of machinery and everything else. If you don't have boots on the ground, how are you going to fight this war? So ultimately, it impacts on the strength of the sovereign nation. I'm very worried about reading South Africa's preparedness um, for, I think there was an Institute of Security Studies released a report. Um, there's not enough 
there's not enough aeroplanes, helicopters. Uh, there isn't enough, I would suggest, uh, readiness. We don't have enough uh, armored troop carriers. So a lot of problems can come from a lack of, uh, you know, keeping up the birth rate. I think on the other side, India seems to be doing pretty well with births. Um, and, you know, they don't seem to have the shortage of uh, manpower and skills. They have a, a vibrant young community that are mostly educated. And now, as you can see, sought all over the world for the IT skills. So, yeah, that's, um, I suppose, interfering with nature will have consequences. And China is seeing that. Shafa. I think I will read my mind there. Eh? I say, hey. hey. India don't have, uh, no, they don't have that uh, popular population. I think Indira Gandhi wanted to uh, uh, follow India in that way, but the Charos, mm -mm, they don't like that. They love the babies. <laughs> hey, hey, Indians love the the, the, the babies. Well, we get to our topic here, Ashraf, and uh, 22 Afghan national, uh, national seeking asylum in RSA. And uh, talk to us about it uh, and the judgment there, Ashraf. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, when I was looking at reading the judgment, you know, I couldn't help but seeing um, that it looks like certain groups of families, like the Fakir Zada, had five applicants. The Alami, and I'm reading from their surnames, right? The Alami people had another five. Then the Ahmadi, Ahmadi, they had about six or seven or ten. Lots of people, uh, and then uh, one or two others that. So we know the background to this, right? With the uh, fall of um, uh, when the when the Taliban basically took over Afghanistan, uh, the Americans pulled out all of the key personnel, and according to them, they tried to remove other people as well. Now, what was surprising? is that these were were people that were had sided with the American state uh, against the Taliban. And um, they then, I don't know how they were re removed from Afghanistan to Pakistan, but basically that's where they took refuge first. And, you know, there was a long journey and they found themselves now in South Africa. This wasn't the first time, I must tell you, there was a similar incident, I think, last year when there were 144 Afghanis that were apparently ready on the tarmac to fly out to South Africa. And uh, basically, they were not at the port of entry. You can imagine that the law wouldn't, wouldn't just allow them. But here's what is, we, we have to understand how the, how the whole system works, you know. So I'll try and, you know, briefly explain. So basically, in terms of our law, if an asylum seeker approaches a immigration official at the border, uh, the official is obliged to issue him in terms of the regulations, what we call an asylum transit visa, which is, which is uh, valid for five days. That visa allow it so so that's in terms of the immigration act right that visa allows you to present yourself to a refugee reception officer and give your uh, story to him 
and um, basically apply for asylum. Um, so it, it's quite deep, this thing, that you cannot refuse a asylum seeker. That's what I'm saying. And basically, you know, it's, it's basically on demand. So interestingly here, they, um, they said that, look, we were, we were working for the Americans. And as they described the Taliban as a terrorist organization, and the, the so-called terrorist organization uh, wanted to actively eliminate uh, Afghani nationals who supported the Americans during the occupation. Then they produced a copy of a warrant apparently issued by Taliban and written in Arabic and translated by artificial intelligence because they didn't have a, um, a proper uh, translator. So here's what they produce is that, look, um, they, these people worked at the American University in Kabul and, um, you know, some of them were, st were studying there and they said that such conduct was against the rules of the Islamic Emirate. And that's why they were, they said that um, people that were arrested by, uh, by the Taliban, other people, uh, you know, they faced, they faced death. They said that, look, we face the same kind of thing. If uh, we go back, we're going to be, uh, you know, uh, we're going to be uh, prosecuted or even killed or tortured. Interestingly, they said that they traveled from safe houses in Pakistan and they transited through Zimbabwe en route to South Africa. We don't know how they did this. Was this by road? Was this by air? Was this by ship? We don't know how. how. But anyway, they, they now went, went to Bait Bridge and they met Mr. Chauke, who's an employee of the department. They said, look, Okay, we are now here. Uh, can you please uh, give us the visa? And uh, so we can go to the refugee reception office here in Marabastad and uh, or in um, Musina. Mr. Chauke said, no, no, this can't happen. You're a threat to South Africa's security. And, and you heard the minister say on, on TV, you know, what if the Taliban come here and they start suicide bombing and start trying to find these people and start killing. Well, you know, our security will be threatened. This is the minister's saying. In any event, Mr. Chauke then said, no, um, I'm, I'm refusing your entry. You must go back uh, to Zimbabwe and I'm handing you over. He said, look, I don't have a discretion and uh, I'm sorry, uh, but uh, I'm turning you away. Unfortunately for him, um, they say that he had not acquainted himself with the regulations that accompany the Refugees Act. But here's how they started the argument in court. They said that South Africa has a international framework that it must obey. So basically we are, uh, we are signatories to the United Nations Convention of 1945 as well as the African Union Convention. And in the precise words, says everyone has a right to seek and enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. Now, you know, those there are four there are four bases 
that you can be prosecuted or persecuted and that you 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 fleeing from uh, when you when you're seeking asylum or refugee status it says you must have a well-founded fear of being persecuted for the reasons of race religion nationality membership of a political or social group or political opinion the second is that he must be outside his country of origin and he must be unable to return owing to such fear or unwilling to avail himself of the protection of his country. So there's a very important uh, international, let's say, protocol, right, or principle. It's, it's, it, uh, it's in French, but it's non-refoulement. It put it in English, it's non-refoulement. Now, this is the, it obliges the state to refrain from sending people back to wherever they came from if they're likely to suffer persecution or it is an endangerment to their life or freedom. And this principle of non-refoulement guarantees that no one will be returned to the country if they were to face torture, cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment or irreparable harm. And that is enshrined in the United Nations 1951 Convention. Now, it finds application in South African law because our constitution reads as follows. When interpreting any legislation, every court must prefer any reasonable interpretation of legislation that is consistent with international law over any alternative interpretation that is inconsistent. So here, basically, you're seeing how international law forms part of South African law. But putting in the context of the Refugees Act, read with the Immigration Act, you know, the preamble to the Refugees Act says, basically, South Africa's, um, it, you know, will give effect to relevant international instruments, principles and standards, and to provide reception into South Africa of asylum seekers and to regulate the application for recognition and to provide for the rights and obligations flowing from such status. So you can see, you know, there's the accusation that um, South Africa has got porous borders, but you don't have to have a porous border. They came to Baitbridge and they demanded asylum. And then because of our, how Refugees Act reads, you have to. Yeah, you know, you have to accede to that because we signed, like I said, the 1951 convention relating to uh, refugees and the 67 protocol relating to refugees and 69 OAU convention governing specific aspects of refugees protection. Now, Section 21 of the Act provides an application for asylum must be made in person in accordance with the prescribed procedure at the RSDO, which I said to you was the reception, a refugee reception officer at any refugee reception office, the one we have in Pretoria is called the Desmond Tutu Refugee Reception Office. And then Regulation 7 says very clearly, any person who intends to apply for asylum must declare his intention while at the port of entry. And it goes on and on. And at the end of the day, Shafat, I think we, we are running out of time, so I'll just be brief. The court found that these refugees had made a proper case 
and Mr. Chauke's interpretation of the act was incorrect. They were given transit visas. That doesn't mean it's the end of the story. They're given transit visas. They go to the RS, RSDO. Now, the RSDO has to take down their, um, their version. He records it both electronically and in writing. And then comes the logjam, Shafat. This long process of awaiting an outcome. So you get an initial document in the form of a Form 23 permit, which basically protects you while you're in the country. And sorry, Shafat, I'm just going to... Okay, as uh, we know that Ashraf is already winding down and uh, giving us uh, his uh, final judgment on a powerful, lovely show indeed. And uh, yes, I will let him take that call. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed uh, listening to him uh, with a medley of topics and each topic very interesting indeed. And, uh, you know, when Ashraf comes on, he really adds I'm, I'm a, ready. Lot of, a lot of flavor to uh, uh, legal talk. Yes, Ashraf, as we wind down, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and you told us, uh, you know, you fast forwarded uh, the judgment. But as you said, it's not over yet, Ashraf. It's not over yet because they have to now investigate, first of all, whether the Taliban had actually issued such a death notice or warrant. You know, if that is found to be fraudulent or uh, false, I think um, that's the end of that application. So it might be that the Durko will now liaise with the uh, Afghani authorities in the form of the uh, government of Taliban and find out, look, are you making all these threats against them? In fact, refoulement is not the, you know, it's not cast in stone. Uh, you can return the people there if there's an undertaking by that government to afford them protection. So you remember earlier on we, we read. Uh, so it's far from over. I think this is a, um, a uh, I would say, definitely in terms of the law, a success for the applicants. But whether they will ultimately find safety uh, and by way of asylum uh, in South Africa is is uh, is uh, is interesting to see because look they you know they, it's very deep this topic but I don't think we've got the time now to go into it you know it speaks of discretion etc etc Shavat I don't know if we can cover more than that now I tell you Ashraf uh, you know uh, as uh, you can see the hour is nearly coming up but uh, you were absolutely brilliant and uh, what i liked about uh, our show this evening is uh, you know we had a medley of topic uh, topics and you have done so much of justice and i enjoyed every segment with you allah bless you allah keep you and perhaps your parting words uh, this evening i mean for your good words to me uh, i mean we try and uh, you know give a little bit of our time and knowledge to our to our dear listeners who are part of our ummah we don't know if we're ever going to be faced with such situations. We pray that we don't, and we are not. And um, as always, I say, you know, remember the Ummah in our prayers. Remember those, the poor and the needy, you know, the ones that are really, there's a lot of suffering in our country. Um, you know, there's a lot of sickness. And what, what can we do? We are but helpless slaves, you know, knocking on the door of our Creator. And remember everyone in your du'as, and as always, the magnificent heart of the Qur'an is the Yasin. And always continue doing the Yasin because it has great benefit, it has lots of secrets. It is the heart of the Qur'an and it will definitely affect the heart of, of the movement. But that's my parting words, and thank you to you, your your program directors, the owners of the station, 
those that support it, and our, of course our dear listeners for taking the trouble to uh, join us. Ashraf, you have a beautiful and a blessed evening ahead. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha'zan and inshallah we will continue after that.